And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 95. Going back to last week in that fucking heaviest shit episode, I feel like we got so many people that reached out that were like, no, I know so many people that have RAD, which is the attachment disorder we were talking about. And they shared their journey with us. And it was pretty amazing. Yeah, it really was. And you're just thankful that they didn't have to go through what Candace had to go through. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty cool to see that reaction. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that I wasn't the only one who was so fired up about that. Mm, oh, my God, I know. Goodness gracious. Oh, speaking of like something heavy that you've covered, Anne with an E, which is Anne of Green Gables on mm-hmm. Netflix, the season three came out. And might have already binged it because I freaking love that show. It's so like wholesome. Mm-hmm. Well, this season they tackle because it's set in Canada. And so this season they tackle those schools that you had talked about with the indigenous people. Really? Yeah. My God. It was heartbreaking. <laughs> like, I'm like, when's the next season coming out? Because I need. Like, is this the end? What is it going on? I need yeah. answers, you know, like, oh. And speaking of Netflix shows, you is all over every meme, you know, all the things. I've only seen the first season. I I really like it anyway. Need to see the second one. I was going to watch it. I was like, oh, yeah. And with the knee. You know, yeah. I was like, and binge. Anyway, but I saw this meme and I was like, yes. And I have to bring it up because Carrie has never seen a freaking movie that shaped my freaking childhood. Okay. So the meme is saying, everyone's like, Joe this, Joe that from you. Mm -hmm. And it said, everyone's forgot about him. And it is David from Fear. And that's with Reese Witherspoon and Mark Wahlberg. Oh, this is the one where they're in the Ferris wheel? Not the Ferris wheel. It was a roller coaster. Oh. But yes. So like Casper was, you know, the sleepover porn. This was, oh shit, I want to go to the fair because if y'all never seen it, Wild Horses is playing in the background and you're like, oh my God. And she is being taken away somewhere. (laughs) She's free falling. And he's catching her with at least two digits. Sexual awakening, y'all. <laughs> I could just picture little Donna sitting there like watching TV. <laughs> and Tiffany. And little Tiffany. Little Tiffany like covering her eyes, but she not really covering her eyes because she doesn't actually <laughs> cover her eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Patty Joe said, hey, rewind that one more time. <laughs> I'm not lying. And then your dad walks in and goes, damn it, Patty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was probably mad. Walker, Texas Ranger was probably coming on. Mm -hmm. This week, I had such a hard time deciding what story I wanted to do. I would start one. I'd be like, man, I don't know. I don't want to do that one. Then I'd do another one. Then I was like, and that was very similar to last week. And I was like, I can't do that to people two weeks in a fucking row. So I'm looking through my phone at the screenshots of stuff that I've taken from the Facebook group that people have recommended stories. And not too long ago in the Facebook group, Sean recommended this story. Okay. Okay. She and her husband had gone to Arizona and they stopped at this little museum and she found this. 
Dun, dun, dun. Speaking of screenshots, I have a plethora of them. Bonus word today. I learned that word in high school when I would right-click thesaurus Uh when I was writing papers. Yes, me too. Anyway, if y'all are iPhone users, if y'all have an app where we can do photos differently, please let me know because I hate how our photos just go into that one lump sum thing. Like, I don't want to use that anymore. Well, you can make folders. No, I know, but it still has that one all photos and like I instantly hit that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't scroll down because it's like right there. Yeah. But like, please help a girl out because I, oh, it aggravates me. Okay. So I'm doing the story of Winnie Ruth Judd, a.k.a. the trunk murderess. Ooh, shit. I must have just like passed this one by. Yeah, you must have been like, oh, true crime skip. Yeah. Ooh. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, there were two places that I got a lot of information from. One of them was like a, almost like a story about, well, the story, where it kind of like ad-libbed some of the dialogue and that kind of thing, but it had a lot of the facts because it was like interviewing people that knew her and all that by Joseph Geringer. And then there was another article that really like broke it down really well by Ashley Nicole. Okay, so... She was born Winnie Ruth McKinnell, and she went by Ruth, so we're going to call her Ruth. She was born in Oxford, Indiana on January 29th, 1905. Oh, this is back in the day. Back in the day. Ruth had, a, I would say, a fairly typical upbringing for the time. Her father was a Methodist minister, and her parents were very strict. Some say, because I was watching some videos on YouTube, and something said that even at a young age, though, She was a bit of a troublemaker. Like when she was a teenager, she told her parents that she was pregnant. And when they took her to the doctor, the doctor was like, she's still a virgin. And that wasn't the only time that she lied and said she was pregnant. Or like another time she lied and said that she had a baby. And then when she was taken to the doctor, they were like, she's never been in labor before. Like she's never, you know. Yeah. The cervix has never dilated. Oh, my God. She reminds me of the blonde-headed girl from Crybaby. She's like, Crybaby, this is our baby. I'm like, no, the fuck it's not. (laughs) Ruth just always was like, almost like in a battle against the patriarchal sternness of her father. And so when she was 17, she married a guy who was 40 years old. Hello? (laughs) Donna's wet dream come true. You're not wrong. Except, okay, so he was a World War One veteran. Dog tags. I mean, y'all don't even need to know where my brain went. If the tags are jingling, something's a tingling. <laughs> <laughs> and then Donna just tells you what we're thinking. <laughs> okay, so... We all know that, especially like in World War One, veterans had been given significant amounts of drugs to like keep them awake, get them through the war when they were yeah. injured, that kind of thing. So on paper, Ruth's husband was like, okay, you know, she got daddy issues. He's 40. He's a veteran. He's a doctor. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. His name was Dr. William C. Judd. But 
he was addicted to morphine. Mm. Yeah. He had a wound from the war that they treated him with morphine, and he became addicted. When they met, Ruth was working at a psychiatric hospital where she was in charge of, like, the typing and the filing of all the medical records. And he was a physician there. After they got married, though, because, okay, because of his morphine addiction, he had a a hard time holding down a job. And so he took Ruth and they moved to northern Mexico. Okay, change of scenery. Yeah, well, because he was going to try to make a go of it as a physician down there Mm -hmm. because he couldn't make it happen in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So they were having a lot of money trouble. Ruth was having some poor health because she had two miscarriages. Mm. And then she ended up getting tuberculosis. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And so he put her in a sanatorium in California. I probably covered it. Or will cover it. But like legitimately, probably. Mm -hmm. After she got out of the sanatorium, though, I guess her tuberculosis was... Clear. I don't honestly, I didn't see much about what happened with her TB, but she tried to like reunite with him in Mexico a few times. They went from town to town, but it just the marriage was broken. They were financially strapped for cash that was causing all this stress in the marriage. He was having a hard time keeping up a job. The locals tended to not like him as a physician. She had just been sick, had the miscarriages. It just was a hard time. And so they ended up separating. Oh, gosh. She moved to Phoenix, and he moved to L.A. When Ruth got to Phoenix, she got a job as a governess for the Lee Ford family, which was this very wealthy family in the area. While she was working for the family, she started chatting up the neighbor. Because, look, Ruth was gorgeous. And she was very, like, fashionable. Like, because, again, we're kind of hitting in the 1920s, 30s-ish. And so she cut her hair in, like, that short bob cut. She's just kind of like a little fashionista. Yeah. And so while she's working as a governess for the Ford family, she's, you know, living her beautiful young life. And their next-door neighbor, Jack Halloran, was completely smitten with her. So picture it. That she's working for this family next door to Jack Halloran. And they like talk across the fence to each other. Like that's kind of how they develop their relationship. Like Home Improvement Wilson. Donna, I swear you read my brain. (laughs) That was my next. Like that was legit my next thing to say. (laughs) Well, the only drawback was he was married with three kids. And well, she's still married too. It's said that Jack and her husband, Dr. Judd, were like polar opposites. You know, the doctor was more, I don't want to say docile, but maybe that's the right word. Whereas Jack was more exuberant and he, you know, would be the life of the party. And and they say his laughter would like fill a room. Well, yeah, because Judd was howlmorphine. He was like, you know, (laughs) what? Literally. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They said that, like, even sexually, Jack was way, I don't know, more advanced, for lack of a better word, than the doctor. Again, he's high on morphine. He got morphine dick. Okay, here's the thing. 
Carrie can barely function on a Benadryl. That bitch is out for like six hours. How is Dr. Judd going to be like peak performance on morphine with who the fuck knows how much? First of all, that was two Benadryl, not one, when it knocked me out for six hours. (laughs) Second of all, you're not wrong. Quick poll. Please let us know in the group or on Instagram who is affected by Benadryl and who isn't. Because me, I could pop them and keep on going. Legitimately, one time I saw Donna take three Benadryl. (laughs) Three. She never bat a fucking eye. (laughs) She was like, but but it's not one of those Benadryl has the opposite effect on her. Because you know how some people it like makes them hyper. Oh, no. It just doesn't make her sleepy. This is also the girl that can take mm, 15, 20 milligrams of fucking melatonin and not go to sleep. This is true. I took five milligrams and was like, Donna, why are my eyes crossing? <laughs> sunshine in a bag. <laughs> Please do it. <sighs> Little balls of sunshine in a bag. <laughs> okay. Jack owned one of the largest lumber yards in Phoenix. I was just thinking, of course he's peak performance in. He's got a, a, a whole lot of wood. Jesus, God. I don't even know what to say to that. Besides, you're not wrong. <laughs> She's going down. He's yelling, Timber. All right, Kesha. Ruth had been a governess for a couple of months when she was like, all right, fuck kids. Let me go get a better job and make more money. That doesn't involve kids. I don't actually know all that, but she did get a better job making more money. I'm just saying, so far, up until this point... Ruth and I share a lot of the same things. A husband addicted to morphine? Daddy issues. (laughs) So Ruth got a job working as a medical secretary. It was 1931, and she, her salary was $75. Damn. Which was apparently, hey, big spenda. Mm-hmm. She was able to rent this little, cute little cottage thing. A she shed. But it was at 1102 East Brill Street, and it's still there. Oh, damn. Mm-hmm. Like, it was enough that she covered her rent, her expenses, and even sent her husband a little bit of money because he was in California and, like, undergoing drug treatment. While she's working as the medical secretary, she meets an x-ray technician who was named Agnes Leroy, and she went by Anne. They became fast friends. Anne was originally from Oregon. She was divorced and just, you know, trying to live her life now. She met another girl, Hedvig Samuelson, and she went by Sammy. Sammy was a teacher from North Dakota, but she had tuberculosis as well. And so she was on a hiatus from teaching because she was sick. So Sammy and Anne were friends before they met Ruth. They had actually worked together in Alaska, and because Sammy's health was getting worse, they decided to move to Phoenix. It's rumored that Anne and Sammy were romantically involved, but I guess you'd say present-day thinking, potentially they were bisexual and maybe had a little bit of a relationship, but they also were interested in men, too. Like, they had relationships with men, but, I mean... Could have been a cover-up, yes, but it was also, like, sexual relationships in which they, I mean, appeared happy. You know, so, who knows? They could have been bisexual. It could have been a cover-up. Who knows? 
they all three lived together for a little while. You know, they they just had a good old time. They were friends that would, they would stay up late, drinking, playing cards. And then, okay, so Jack Halloran was in and out all the time for his job as far as like traveling. And when he would come back, he would bring them crates full of bootlegged alcohol. In addition to all the alcohol, Jack would also bring some of his friends from work. And it's said that Anne and Sammy would kind of entertain the men, even though they were married. Well, don't threaten them with a good time. (laughs) Also, it's said that at some point, all three of the girls had a relationship with Jack. So he was a little bit of a sore subject with all of the women because, again, they had all had relationships. And Ruth knew that sometimes when Jack would come into town, he would visit the two girls without her there. This is sounding like sister wives. And I don't want any fucking part of that. Mm-mm. Well, you know how it always is. Like, they're jealous of Cody. I don't even watch the fucking show anymore, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like anytime you have that many people trying to share a small space, it's going to lead to trouble. Especially because Anne and Sammy were such good friends way before Ruth. And, you know, a lot of stuff said, like, their friendship was impenetrable. You know, one article was saying that whether, like, sexual or spiritual, they were soulmates and just connected in a way because they were just such good friends. And so they just, they had their, they had their lives down pat. They had lived together for a long time, you know, when they lived in Alaska and then moved to Phoenix Anne was the one who made the money, and because Sammy was sick, she was the one that, like, stayed home and all of that. And they just had some clashes with Ruth that were just not, they just couldn't get over. Yeah. Of course, it starts with small things, like Ruth was a little messier than the other two, and then Ruth gets jealous because Jack comes to visit, you know, all the things. And so, just to keep the peace, Ruth was like, okay, I'm going to move out. Even though Ruth moved out, she would still come over all the time and they would have their late nights, you know, drinking, playing games. And on the night of October 16th, 1931, Tiffany's birthday, Anne had invited Ruth over to have dinner and all the things. And Ruth said, you know, I got some business tonight. Like, I I can't come. Well, really, Ruth had lied about her plans and she was hanging out with Jack and she just didn't want to go over there. Sketchy, sketchy. Mm-hmm. Well, Jack is like, oh, shit, I forgot I had to stop by their house because he had a few friends that were actually visiting there. And so he was like, we need to stop by. And Ruth's like, oh, fuck. You know, well, I told him I can't. So, yeah. you know, so it was kind of like a, ooh, you know, weird kind of night to begin with. Well, and let me, I left out that somebody else was with them. Okay, so let me back up just a little bit. The night before, Jack had said that he and some buddies were going to go hunting. And Ruth was like, hey, you know what? There's this girl that works with me. And she's from the area. She really knows, like, the wildlife. I need to get y'all together so y'all can talk about it and she can help y'all out. So she was with Ruth and Jack when they went to the house. And that was the other thing, too, is that Ruth was like, ugh. These girls are going to be probably pissed because this new girl is like beautiful and she's with us and with all these 
like work buddies of Jack who they, those girls had been kind of entertaining and, you know, they were like big spenders and the girls were, you know, sugar daddy, sugar baby type thing. And so it That's was so murky. I know. Just, I ugh, know. Anxiety. Yes. And so Ruth was like, fuck, like, I don't want them to see this young girl with us that I'm introducing to them because they're going to get pissed. And so when they were there, everything seemed okay. Like nobody seemed aggravated or anything. And they were even like, hey, you know, just stay for dinner. And Ruth's like, no, it's okay. I got, I got dinner like cooking at home. We need to get back. Well, they were mad. Surprise, surprise, Mm -hmm. said no one. Exactly. But that's like one story of what happened that night. I feel like we're on Clue where it's like, all right, that's what happened. And then it's like, this could also happen. Have you you watched that movie? No. Oh, my God. Carrie. I've seen parts of it. I really have seen parts of it. How have you only seen parts of it? It's so great. Another story is that same night, October 16th, 1931, Anne had invited Ruth over because they were going to play cards and hang out and all of that. And Ruth was like, well, I already have plans to see Jack, so meh, can't make it. Well, Jack fucking did the fuck boy thing before that was the thing and ghosted her that night. Surprise, surprise, said no one. Mm Mm-hmm. So because Jack didn't show, she was like, I guess I'll go over to Anne's. And so she went over there with the girls. What happened from there we don't actually know. What? All we know is that there was some sort of altercation. And that altercation ended with Ruth with a gunshot wound in her left hand and Anne and Sammy dead. Dun, dun, dun. So one thing said that when they were hanging out, they started to argue about Jack. And while they were arguing, allegedly... Sammy pulled out a gun and shot Ruth in the hand. And then Anne grabbed an ironing board and started beating Ruth with it. Dang! Mm-hmm. Now, remember, though, Sammy is supposed to be ill with tuberculosis. So was she really the one being, like, fighting? You know what I mean? We don't know. Some stuff says, no, she was too sick to do it. But then again, I'm like, well... If she was playing like fucking Susie Homemaker while Anne worked, uh, no, I feel like she probably had enough energy to pull a gun. Like if she was partying yeah. with them and all of that, I don't feel like she was as sick as some of the stuff made her out to be. Yeah. In a different story about what happened that night, some say that Ruth had a gun and a knife and she went to their house when they were both asleep. And some say that the women had actually been shot in their beds. But here's the thing. Both of their mattresses were actually missing from the house. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's plausible. They ended up finding one mattress, like, but it was like in a vacant lot and it had no blood stains. So, again, while it's plausible, if they were bisexual, were they in the same bed? Mm. Who knows? I just added that piece. So that's all fucking allegedly. Yeah. I wonder if that pissed Ruth off more. Like if she saw them together in the bed, like y'all are like still in my man, but then y'all are also like together too. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's, I mean, that's completely conjecture, you yeah. know? Okay. But this that I'm about to tell you is what I think is kind of widely accepted as the main, like what happened. Let me get my popcorn. All right. So Ruth gets home from work and she's waiting on Jack to take her out. And she waited and she waited and she waited. And that motherfucker never showed up. Plausible. So she's like, fuck this fuck boy. I'm going to see the girls. Plausible. She knew that Anne and Sammy had another friend over that they were going to be up late playing cards. And so she's like, I'm fucking going over there. So when she gets there, the people that had been there playing the card game had left. And so the girls were like, look, just stay the night. You know, just just stay. Is this me, you, and Tiffany? Somebody, well, I ain't gonna kill y'all. But somebody's fuckboy didn't show. And so we all get together and just, just stay the night. Just come on, just stay the night. Fuck him. True. So, allegedly, they were all getting ready for bed. You know, hanging out. Shooting the shit when they started arguing because Ann and Sammy were pissed that Ruth had brought over that other girl. It said that Ann was the one who started it and that she was just all over Ruth's ass about bringing this girl over and saying, you know, totally like slut shaming this girl, saying that she had syphilis and all this stuff. And because syphilis was like, the AIDS of the 30s. Like, that was... Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, she's like, why the fuck are you bringing her? She got syphilis, you know, all the things. You got fucking tuberculosis. Well, that's Sammy, but yes. And so... Well, her girlfriend does, so she she about to get it. And so, it's said that Ruth is like, um, first of fucking all, he's not interested in her. And second of all, if you know she has syphilis, you need to keep your fucking mouth shut because you read that in her file and you ain't supposed to be telling anybody that. Oh, shit. Hippo what? I don't think HIPAA was a thing in then, but basically. Mm-hmm. So then it blows up. And of course, Anne and Sammy are thick as thieves, these two. So they're going to side yeah. with one another. And so then they start, ba- again, allegedly, they start telling Ruth that she's a slut. And wouldn't Dr. Judd be happy to know that you fucking around with all these people, blah, 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 just completely slut shaming her. And so she's like, well, you know what? You gonna be doing all that shit, talking shit about her having syphilis? I'm gonna tell everybody y'all are fucking lesbians. Mic drop. She says, and to top it all off, Anne, I'm gonna tell everybody about that day you were pissed and you intentionally broke that X-ray machine. Oh fuck! <laughs> Ruth had all the shit on Anne, but did she keep the receipts? Right. So it said that right after this, Sammy was like, "Fuck." All this arguing, and she brought out a fucking gun. So Sammy gets the gun out, points it in Ruth's chest, and is talking shit. Ruth goes to move the gun away from her chest, and when they're fighting with the gun, that's when the gun is shot into her left hand. And so this is all happening in the kitchen. So while they're like fighting for the gun, the gun goes off, hits Ruth in their hand, Ruth finds a knife, and while Sammy is trying to re-aim to hit her again, Ruth starts stabbing Sammy. So they start tussling, and Ruth says that she grabbed the gun from Sammy's hand, and when she grabbed it, she pulled the trigger, and the gun went off and shot Sammy in the chest. While all this is happening, Anne comes in, and she is hitting Ruth in the head with the ironing board. 
and telling Sammy, shoot her, shoot her. I feel like this is still Magnolias mixed with swamp people. (laughs) (laughs) Woo. Okay, so remember, she's now shot Sammy, and so Sammy's not fighting her anymore. And so now she's got the gun, she being Ruth, and Anne is, like, continually hitting her with, like, a bat and the iron armor. Don't ask me where the bat came from. I don't fucking know. So Ruth says that she starts shooting in Anne's direction to get her to stop. And she's like, I don't even fucking know how many times I shot. I just shot. So Anne falls. She's dead. Sammy's down. Ruth passes out, too. Ruth wakes up from passing out. And she says that she's sitting on the floor. And she said, I put my dress on and nothing else. Just my shoes and my dress. And she goes home. When she gets home, Jack's there. And he is fucking wasted. Ruth was distraught. She was going to call Dr. Judd. But Jack was like, don't call him. I'm going to help. So she told him everything that happened. But at first, he didn't believe her. And so she was like, you don't fucking believe me? Then get in the goddamn car. Let's go over there. So they went over there so he could see everything. And so Jack was helping her clean up. He took Sammy. He picked her up and took her to Anne's bed. And while he's like moving the bodies, Ruth is cleaning up in the kitchen. So just picture Ruth. She's just killed her two friends. She is cleaning up the bloody kitchen while Jack is moving the bodies. Her hand hurts. Her hand has got a freaking gunshot wound in it. And she's trying to clean up this blood. And she just fucking breaks down. And she's like, I can't fucking do this. I just need to turn myself in. This is too much. And Jack's like, no, the fuck you're not. Get your shit together. I'm going to call my friend, Dr. Brown. He's going to come look at your hand. And let's get this shit done. They called this Dr. Brown a few times, and he never answered. And so they were just like, okay, fuck it. Deal with your shit. We're going to keep cleaning this place up. So Jack brings this big old, like, packing trunk from the garage. At this point, according to Ruth, she is inconsolable. And Jack is like, look, you cannot get your shit together. I'm taking you home. You need to stay there. Figure this out. I'll take care of it. She says that she spent that whole night freaking out, worried, crying, all the things. And the next morning, she called work and she was like, look, I need the day off. And they were like, um, fuck no, get your ass to work. And so she was like, well, I got to fucking go or it's going to draw suspicion. And so she goes to work and she's just sitting there waiting to hear from Jack. Her hand hurts, all the things, but what could she do? At about noon, she finally heard from Jack and he said look when you get off work come to the girl's house we got to figure this out so when she gets there she walks in and she sees the trunk and she's like fuck it's still here like she thought Jack had taken care of it all and he was like look it's too risky to do this here this is what we need to do you need to take the trunk with you to Los Angeles because it's easier for us to get rid of it there than here and he said look I've got this guy, and he's willing to meet you to get rid of the trunks. And she's like, okay. All I got to do, I got to get this fucking trunk to L.A., and when I get there, I'll meet back up with Dr. Judd. He's going to get this fucking bullet out of my hand, and all is going to be okay. And she's like, it'll give me, like, her alibi. She can go see her brother that's, like, in college there. She's like, this is going to work out great. She asked Jack, she was like, so both of these bodies fit in here? 
And he's like, well, I got Anne on the bottom, but uh, I really couldn't fit both of them. So he dismembered Sammy so that he could fit both of them in the trunk. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the plan was to ship the trunk, like freight, to L.A., but because it was too heavy, Ruth had to separate it into two containers. I feel and- attacked. <laughs> and, like, go with them on the train. So she had now the, like, two containers, a.k.a. trunks, that she was taking with her. So when she got to the station, the largest trunk weighed too much and so she was like oh fuck like it was just like almost like a fucking comedy of errors of the shit that was happening to ruth with these trunks which i giggle at but it's fucking dead bodies of people she killed but this is like a fucking like movie shit that would happen yes and so she was like son of a bitch it's overweight like they're gonna not let me take it but they were like no no no, you could take it but it's gonna cost four dollars and fifty cents for the extra weight which you know that had to have been a fuck ton of money back then So they took it all, she gets her little ticket stamped, and she gets on the train. And she's feeling like she can breathe again. You know, the trunks are on the train, she's on the train, in 12 hours she's going to be home free and meet up with Jack's friend that's going to get the trunks from her. This best laid plan, they didn't think about the fucking smell. Oh my goodness. Or the fact that... The decomposition was going to create, like, fluid coming out of the fucking trunks. So, the baggage agent was like, the fuck are in these trunks? When they get to L.A., Root's brother gets there to pick her up, you know, from the train station. And he himself is a little bit like, the hell with these, what are these trunks? You know, like, he, you know, when he sees them to, like, help her load them up and stuff, he's like, the fuck is with this? Well, again, so is that baggage agent. And so they're like, ma'am, we need you to open these. Like, what is this? Because at first they were thinking maybe she was transporting a dead deer, which that she wouldn't be able to do that. And they're like, she can't do this anyway. Like, we need to open these. And she's like, oh, um, well, actually, they're my husband's trunks and he has the key and he's not with me. So I can't open them. Okay, bye. And she and her brother like leave. He doesn't know anything though. Oh my God. Yeah. So he has no idea that there's bodies in the trunk. And I mean, I guess they couldn't really stop her because they're not really police. And so she's just like, okay, bye. Oh my gosh. Holy crap. Yeah. You know what I feel like this is? You know, in football games when it's like, and whoop, 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 you know, like they're mm-hmm. like thrown in. It's like, and it goes back over here. He tosses it back, you know, yeah. all of that. And you're like, how is it going to end? What's going to happen? You know? It's yes. Like, what the fuck? How do you, what? Yes. So when she fucking gets the hell out of Dodge, they call police. And they're like, look, we got these trunks. There's some shit going on with it. We don't know what it is. It's suspicious as fuck. Can you come check this out? Because we don't got a lock and key. The police get there and they break open the trunks. And when they open them, they find bloody clothes, the bodies, and some handwritten letters. So Ruth is like on the run in L.A. Her brother dropped her off, but we don't really know where he dropped her off. And then, really, no matter where he dropped her off, 
she took off on foot going other places. So she was on the run. So while the police in L.A. are trying to figure out who the fuck Ruth is and look for her, the police in Phoenix are now checking out a crime scene because Anne was supposed to be at work the same day that Ruth went and people know something's up. And so they're trying to figure out what the hell happened in that crime scene. But you're going to get a kick out of this part. It'll piss you off, but you'll get a kick out of it. The damn landlord, being the hustler that he was, charged 10 cents for anybody that wanted to, to come tour the crime scene. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. He's a hustler, baby. I don't know the rest of the words. Surprise, surprise, said no one. So it wasn't long after all of this happened. It was October 22nd. Ruth surrendered to the police because old Dr. Judd had actually put a letter in the paper, like begging for her to surrender. So when she surrenders to the police, she's got the gunshot wound in her hand and she's covered in bruises. Well, the trial begins and they call her the blonde butcher. They call her the trunk murderess. Like she had all these names because she was beautiful. And so it was just this like sensationalized thing because she murdered these two girls. One was dismembered and then she took the fucking trunk on a train ride. So, okay. Ruth's defense was a little bit before their time because they were like, y'all let all these people trample through this crime scene. So how y'all know it was her kind of thing. There was a ton of like faulty evidence confessions that changed because Ruth changed her story numerous times even some claims of insanity the other thing too is that there was some questions as to Jack's participation some people say look he had to have been involved with the murders and they actually indicted him the grand jury that is he went on trial and Ruth even testified against him she says look I killed these girls in self-defense because They were attacking me. Hello. Gunshot wound covered in bruises. Jack helped me clean the scene up. And so the judge was like, well, Ruth, your testimony basically shows that he didn't have anything to do with this. So the judge was like, yeah, he didn't he didn't commit a crime. So uh, he's free, even though he fucking dismembered Sammy and helped her clean up the scene. Oh, yeah. But karma came back to get him because With all this trial and all of that, he really lost his place, like, in society. You know, he wasn't the kind of playboy and well-to-do man that he was, you know, being members of the country club and all of that, because he had just gone on trial for fucking murder. And it was just a couple of years later that he actually passed away. So in February of 1933, they found Ruth guilty of first-degree murder, and they sentenced her to die by hanging. 48 hours before she was set to be hanged, the warden was like, okay, we're going to give you a hearing on your mental competence. Again, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> I, I like, know. what the fuck? I know. Okay, so after the hearing in which they were determining her competence, they found that she was insane like criminally insane 
And so she was sent to the Arizona State Hospital. And she was living her fucking best life in this hospital. However, old girl escaped seven times from this hospital. What the Ted Bundy is going on here? She had a key to the front door. Well, you should have just gave her a key to the city. (laughs) What the hell? Yes. Good night. Yes. Okay. Her last escape was in 1962. So this was like 30 years of being. Oh, my God. Okay. She was out for seven years, like escaped. Holy shit. Yeah. She was working as like a housekeeper, governess type thing. Yes. How'd they find her? Honestly, I don't know how they found her, but they found her. And they brought her back from Northern California, where she had lived those seven years, back to Arizona. When they got her back, she was like, fuck this. And she hired a different attorney. And they got her case up for parole. What? Well, the governor was like, okay, I will release her, but we're going to have to do this quietly. Like, don't tell anybody. Like, just, can you just fade into the sunset? You know? Well, well, she did for seven years. Well, her attorney was like, mm-mm. And he held a press conference <gasps> and was like, this is fucking bullshit. She needs to be released. And so not long after that, she was successfully paroled. She, what the? What the? What? Yep. She moved to Stockton, California in 1983 and... She died in 1998, exactly 67 years to the day that she turned herself into police. That She was like 90-something when she died. What the hell? This is so, like, what the fuck? Yeah. The lawyer was like, this isn't right. She deserves to be released. Uh, Her friends deserve not to be in a fucking trunk and cut up. Well, supposedly she had written a few confessions, like one when she was on the run at the very beginning, like with the trunks that she had tried to like flush and it didn't flush. But I don't know if somebody apparently found it. But they said that when she was on death row, that she wrote a confession saying that she killed Anne in the middle of the night and like while she was sleeping. But she had to kill Sammy because Sammy basically saw her killing Anne. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So there's still so much mystery as far as this case goes. We really have no idea what happened. We'll never know. No, absolutely never. And because there, because Ruth herself told so many versions of the story. Yeah. And to be frank, she has been a liar her whole life. You know, so yeah. you don't know what to believe. And it's like, you can't trust Jack because he's just trying to fucking get off, too, in many ways, Mm -hmm. with all the girls and for murder. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I do think that she downplayed her role in the dismemberment, like of getting, you know, getting him into the trunks at Mm -hmm. the beginning, because I think that she would have had a really hard time separating the bodies the way she had to, to get it in the two trunks. You know, I think she just really minimized her participation in the cleanup and really tried to put it on Jack where Mm -hmm. he may have had some, he was probably the muscle like bringing in the trunks and stuff. But like, I think she did most of the. Wow. That's again, just my opinion. It's all conjecture. We have 
no idea what actually happened, like you said, nor will we ever. This one was a doozy just on the fuck did I just listen to? It it is so dumb. It's yeah. like a, it's like a fucking movie. It's like almost like a comedy murder movie. Yes. It's got so many fuck ups. It's like if Airplane was a murder mystery or like Mr. Bean was in a murder mystery. Yeah. I, you know what? It reminded me a little bit of Throw Mama from the Train. It's like it legitimately, if you watched a movie about this, you'd be like, no fucking way. They're that dumb. Yeah. This could be a crime to remember. Oh, absolutely. It's almost as shocking, but in a completely different way. Than the lady who had the lover that lived up in the attic. Yes. You know, yes. Like, the fuck? This is just like, what? Yeah. And then how it ends is like, she got out. Mm-hmm. She I got- mean, she was in for fucking over 30 years. But she got out. I know. And she had it escaped. And. Normally, that would tack on more time. But she was like. 48 hours away from being hanged. And they're like, well. What What do you want for your last meal? Actually, just have regular breakfast. It's okay. It's okay. Look, you know, actually, I really don't like these conditions. Can we look at this again and maybe send me to a hospital? Yeah. I mean, and I, honestly, though, I wonder how much, like, her beauty mm-hmm. and just, like, the... Like, the circumstances around the case that led to some of the decisions. Mm. You know, because she's just this beautiful... Sensationalized. Yes, and this beautiful woman that... Because, I mean, she's beautiful. And, of course, beautiful people can't do heinous things. So, we should surely, if she did it, that has to mean she's crazy. Let's put her in an institution. Not hang her. Right. Mm. So, thank you so much, Sean, for tagging me and telling me about this story because I fucking loved it. It was a roller coaster. All right. My story doesn't have as many twists and turns, but it definitely veers off some. Okay. So picture it. Warren County, Indiana, October 8th, 1849. I feel like a lot of stuff happens in Indiana and Illinois. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you? I feel like a yeah. lot of your stories are there. Good observation. <laughs> No, but I I agree. On this day, Mary Roth was born, and she lived a normal life aside from her having seizures. She started having them about six months old, and it would be like maybe once a month. Oh, my God. Her poor parents. How scary. Yeah. And I mean, this is back in the day, and so they didn't understand that. Yeah. Nor have the medicine to stop it. Right. Well, other than that, normal living. Until she was 13 years old. At that time, her family moved to Watsika, which is about 70 miles south of Chicago. And Mary's health wasn't the best at this time either. So it was just a whole upheaval for the whole family. Mary had been having at least two epileptic seizures a day. And her health was suffering from this. She was super weak. Her health kept getting worse, and by 1865, when she was 19, she had grown obsessed with blood and bloodletting, 
because she claimed that this was the only time that she could have relief. So they would use leeches, but she would still secretly cut herself. Oh, God. Sidebar, using leeches is still a thing. Yeah. Everything came to a peak when she tried to commit suicide by cutting her wrist because she was just so depressed and tired from all of her health troubles. And she was found unconscious by her parents. And of course, they called a doctor. Mary did regain consciousness, but she wasn't really herself. She was super violent at this time. And they actually had to have several adults hold her down in bed for the safety of others and herself. Could you imagine being her parents and finding her? No. For about five days, she was in this odd, delirious, and violent state. Then, just as suddenly as she had became violent, she became calm and slept for 15 hours. When she woke up from Carrie's perfect amount of sleep... (laughs) You're not wrong. She noticed that she had bandages that they had put over her eyes to protect her from scratching when she was doing her unconscious scratching. However, instead of her taking them off, she said that she could see as clearly as she could as if she didn't have any bandages on. Um, what? Yeah. And people tested this. Like, people, you know, I mean, they're going to be like, okay, well, what do I have here? Yeah. How many fingers am I holding up? Yeah. And she would accurately tell them. She read to them a letter that they had put on her table with her eyes bandaged. Oh, my gosh. They had her, like, arrange certain things, you know, like, in a certain order and everything that, I mean, she wouldn't know without being able to see what is on the pages. Even A.J. Smith, who was the editor of the Danville Times, he came, saw this, and so he wrote, like, a long, detailed account of, like, holy shit, she can see, like, she can see with her eyes closed. Yeah. So this is all cool, but... Her seizures started again, and she started going into trances almost, where she could hear voices, and she said that they would tell her to do impossible things. And during these long trances, she would act kind of like she was possessed and would speak in another person's voice. She also developed clairvoyant abilities, where she would start talking about some distant lands and like different countries as well as future events and she would be accurate and there would be no way that she would know this shit yeah however mary's health continued to decline and her doctors did not know what was going on they couldn't figure it out and so what happens when you don't know what is going on You put them in a mental institution. A fucking course. And that's not a slight against her parents, because that's what the doctor said. Like, there's no help for her. You know, and they don't know. And so they're like, oh, okay. Okay. This is what's best for her. Unfortunately, we know the truth that a lot of mental institutions and stuff, the therapy was not always therapeutic. One of their treatments was called water cure and that's where the patient was dunked in icy and scalding hot water (gasps) yeah and i mean it was just torture like what what did they fucking think that that would cure i oh my god like truly what in your brain are you like this will cure 
I don't know, seeing through bandages. You know, like what in the actual fuck? Who knows? Maybe they thought like it would just shock the body or something, but uh, what? I'm not strong enough to have survived back in the day, like no. with an with an illness, you know? Right. And uh, we would have had an illness. Um, have you met me? I, I mean, it would have been fucking organ trial over here for me because <laughs> I'd have been dead in a second. <laughs> Cholera, diphtheria, what else? Axle broken. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sadly enough, Mary was never, quote unquote, cured, and she passed away July 5th, 1865. Okay, now we're going to switch to another girl. Here's that beer. Her name is Laurency Venom, and she was born April 16th, 1864 in Iroquois County, Illinois. In 1871, Laurency and her family moved to a farm and it's seven miles south of Watsika. Fast forward some, and on July 6th, 1877, Lorenzi ran and told her parents that there were people in her room last night, and they kept calling, Rancy, Rancy, and she could feel their breath on her face. And she was 13 at this time. They didn't know what to make of it, but they waved it off as a dream. And about a week later, she was helping her mom with the carpet, And she just straightened up and said, Ma, I feel bad. I feel weird. She was very dizzy and nauseous. And then mere seconds later, it was like her whole body froze up and became very rigid. And she collapsed and she fell into a catatonic sleep for five hours. Again, I know I say this all the time, but her poor fucking parents, they're probably like, what in the actual fuck just happened? Right? When she came to, she was feeling refreshed, but the fainting spells continued and they became more intense. Every day she would have a bout of this where she would just be lying stiff and have a faint pulse, slow, weak breathing, low temperature, and then she would also have super painful abdominal pain during these bouts. She also began to speak while she was sleeping. She would speak of angels, demons, and dead people. She would say in her dreams, like while she's asleep, that she would conversate with dead people, which included her late brother and sister. And sometimes these attacks would last up to eight hours a day. Soon she began speaking in different voices She would start describing faraway places and people with really detailed descriptions, and everything was accurate. And she shouldn't have known. Mm Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when she woke up, she wouldn't remember one single detail. Nothing. Zilch. So things like this are definitely weird, and this is a small town, so word spread like crazy. What also made this like breaking news is that the spiritualist movement, it was like One Direction, Justin Bieber big at this point. And, you know, we've talked about this when I did the Ouija board Mm -hmm. thing. Spiritualism is basically the religious movement that they said that, hey, we believe that the spirits of the dead exist and they can communicate with the living. Mm Mm-hmm. So that idea is growing. So tons of spiritualists were like, hey, things that she's doing kind of sounds like she 
is a medium. So, you know, we need to go watch her witness this. It's greatness. She's going to be like one of the wonders of the world. Everyone was so amazed, like fucking flabbergasted when she would start speaking in foreign languages and then like the kind of garbled speech. And even her personality would start changing when she was in these trances as if she was being possessed by something else, someone else. So everyone's loving, gawking at her. Meanwhile, her family is just helpless and they're, they don't know what to do. And their daughter's symptoms are getting worse. And everyone's like, yay, this is great. And, but no, it's not. Well, Thomas and Lorinda, her parents, they called multiple doctors. And again, they could not find anything wrong with her. Well, one doctor finally was like, uh, she's mentally ill and she needs to be sent to the insane asylum. Well, it's the holiday season. And so they're, you know, spending time with family and they're like, okay, we're going to have to send her to the insane asylum. We don't know what to do, but we cannot watch her just die. Yeah. But they're not going to do it over Christmas. You know, they're like, yeah, you know. Well, January 1878, time has come. She's going to the asylum. However, one of the town founders and a local spiritualist was like, skirt, hold on. Before you do this, like, I have to say something. He said, look, the asylum, it's only going to make her problems worse. It's going to be torture and she's going to die anyway. And they're like, well, how do you know this? Yeah. And he's like, that's what happened to my daughter. <gasps> I'm Asa Roth. No. Yes. Da, da, da. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Roths had heard about this case because, again, you know, people are coming all over and they're like, wait, this sounds like our daughter. What's going on? And then they heard, oh, she's going to the asylum. And they're like, no. Yeah. Oh, my God, no. And this is their way, I think, of making amends. Yeah, too. for sure. Well, after the death of their daughter, Mary, they turned to spiritualism because they were hoping that they could contact Mary again. So we don't know if Asa went there with ulterior motives. Maybe if he said, don't send her to the asylum and they're like, who the fuck are you? Like, we're doing this. He'd be like, okay, but first, can you get in touch with my daughter? You know, that kind of thing. We don't know. Probably. He's a grieving father. So I would have, I would imagine if someone said, hey, I speak to dead people and I ha- I could go talk to them. I'm pretty sure I'd be like, hey, just checking in on you. But also, what up, Patty Joe? Like, can you? Exactly. Can you hit me up? You know? So the Ross had a doctor named E. Winchester Stevens, and he was from Wisconsin, a medical doctor, but he was also an advocate for spiritualism. And so they were like, look, let him investigate this case. Let him check her out and just see what he thinks. So the Venoms agreed to let the doctor examine Lorancy. When the doctor got to the house, Lorancy was sitting in a chair near the stove. Her elbows were on her knees and her hands under her chin and just, you know, in that tight kind of curled up position that I can't get into. Mm. 
And he said her eyes were just wild. And she was just kind of staring blankly at him because her eyes were wild. There was silence that seemed to go on forever. And then when he moved his chair, it made a noise. And it's like, it just broke her out of that that trance. And she turned at him and was just like savage and was like, do not come any closer. Damn. She also did not want to be touched. And she started calling her father Old Black Dick <gasps> and her mother Old Granny. What? <laughs> what? Whole, what in the BBC is happening here? Right? Well, in her case, BBD. <laughs> like, what kind of fucking... How you know he's got a black dick? <laughs> what? <laughs> when I read that, I was like, wait. What? Like, did I, am I seeing this wrong? Am I, like, making this dirty? You know what I mean? This girl was, like, on fucking you porn before it was even a thing. (laughs) Old black dick and old granny. So she kept being in this sour mood, but she would have, like, a range of voices and personalities and everything. And in this trance that she was having... She was being taken over by different entities and unpleasant spirits. One was called Katrina Hogan, and she was an angry old woman. And then another one was a young man called Willie Canning, and he had died by suicide. Hmm. So this went on for over an hour, and the last voice she did was Willie's. So she had, like, this deeper voice. Suddenly, she just threw her arms up in the air and collapsed. Well, Dr. Stevens got her up, like, got her back, roused her up, and now she was calm. Well, Dr. Stevens got her, roused her up, and to calm her down, he mesmerized her or hypnotized her. Well, she did calm down, and her voice changed. And this time, she said that she was in heaven, and she was allowing a spirit who was more gentle to control her. And they asked who the spirit was, and she said, Mary Roth. (gasps) Yeah. And so Mary's father was present and was like, okay, like, yeah, come through, you know? Yeah. And so she did. And so they asked her questions about their house and stuff that there's no way. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way that she would know this. And she gave perfect details because- on the day of Mary's death, Laurency was a 15-month-old baby. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no way she could possibly know this or know Mary or anything. Well, after this whole ordeal, in February, Laurency changed. It was like a switch. She was no longer aggressive. She was no longer wild. She was mild and polite and... Like, sometimes she wouldn't even recognize her own family, and she would ask them to take her home. Oh, God. Well, when the Roths heard this, Mary's mom and her sister went to visit Laurency. And Laurency was looking out the window, and when she saw them coming down the street, she said, There comes my ma and my sister Nervy. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that's what she would call her sister as a when she was a kid. Yeah, 
because her sister's name is like Minerva or something like that. When they came into the house, she, you know, bear hugged them and just like wept with happy tears. Oh, God. So, you know, I mean, like this is huge. And after this, Laurency was just begging to go home and, you know, just way more homesick. And now she was wild in a different way. Well, since she kept asking and kept asking, the Venoms were like, okay, if it's okay with the Roths, like you can go live with them for a little bit. Like just trying to think maybe this will help her with her recovery. Like, I don't know. So everyone's like, okay, okay. Like, this is weird, but okay. And they ask, like, how long do you think you need to be there? And she answered that the angels would let her stay until sometime in May. Because now it seems that Mary, you know, is in control of Laurency. And Mary said that Laurency was very ill and required some time away with the angels in heaven. And there is where she would be cured. But meanwhile, Mary's spirit would be able to spend time with her family and, you know, I mean, kind of have her goodbyes. Yeah. That she never got. So the Roth family was like, uh, yes, we're thrilled with this. And the Venoms are like, I mean, sure, because they have no dog in the race, basically. Yeah. Well, and they've tried everything. Yeah. So again, She had never been in the house, but she seemed to know everything about it. She knew, like, her favorite clothes, her belongings, talked about past events that she would not be able to know. She recognized family members, friends. And for 15 weeks, Laurency Venom was Mary Roth. She lived with them. And, I mean, people were like, no, this is Mary. Like, they tried... They did everything they could, like, tried to throw her off with, like, random questions. And she would know the answer right away. It wasn't a, well, let me think of that. No, like, it was, it was right there. Like, she was Mary. And she also got better physically. So her mental health and her physical health were improving. However, she did not recognize Laurency's family. So when they would come and visit her, she treated them... Like strangers, Mm -hmm. but she grew to treat them as friends over the 15 weeks because they would continually visit. It said that occasionally Mary would go back to heaven, you know, so leave the body in a trance state. And sometimes later on in the stay, like after three months or so, Laurency would come back for like a few minutes at a time. Well, when she would come back, what would she do? She would just be like, hey, I'm back. Yeah, she would have a different personality And be like, what? You know, like, would be confused at it. She wouldn't know him. Yeah. Why am I at this stranger's house? Yeah. But it would only be a few minutes and then back to Mary. One time, Dr. Stevens was questioning Mary about her former life. And she was telling him about how she was cutting her arm one time. And I think he said, show me or, you know, something like that. She pulled up her sleeve and then, like, suddenly stopped. Kind of like, oh, fuck, never mind. And she said, oh, it's not this arm. It's the one that's in the ground. (gasps) And he was like, oh. And she went on to be like, it's buried. You know, like, I'm buried here. Like, how she died. Yeah. 
about the uh, insane asylum and also like who was standing around at the time, like all of the things. She also told Dr. Stevens that she could see his daughter in heaven. And she said that she was happy there. And she like physically described his daughter who had died in 1849. And she described his home in Janesville, Wisconsin, where she had never been and like knew all of his kids' names, like all of the things that like he was like, uh, what? Like, yeah. How you know all this? On May 7th, 1878, Mary told the Roth family that it would soon be time for her to leave because when Laurency would be better, she would have to leave. And so in the following days, she spent time with each family member. She would hold them and just like cry with them and say her goodbyes and everything. And then on May 21st, Laurency was back in her body for good. She asked Mrs. Roth to take her home. When they got to Laurency's house, she hugged her brothers and sisters, you know, was like crying happy tears and just like completely content to be at home. Like this was her home. Yeah. These people who for 15 weeks were strangers to her right now, this was her home and she's like happy tears and all of that. Yeah. Her family asked her like, what, what do you remember about it? And she was like, look, these past 15 weeks... It's like a dream. Like, I can't really remember everything. It kind of comes and goes. But it wasn't me. Laurency's mom said that she had changed for the better, that she was, quote, perfectly and entirely well and natural. She's been smarter, more intelligent, more industrious, more womanly, and more polite than ever. So the Venoms are over-fucking-joyed. They give all the praise to the Roth family and to Dr. Stevens. They're like, look, if she would have stayed at home, she would have died. Wow. Or be sent to the insane asylum and be tortured to death. You know? Like, yeah, absolutely. That's it. In July of 1878, Laurency was pronounced in sound health, both mentally and physically, by Dr. Stevens. And she wrote him a letter, you know, just thanking him for everything and he noted that this handwriting was completely different than the handwriting that she used when he was doing his therapy with her as Mary Roth. Wow. Then in January 1882, Laurency Venom married George Bining. He was a New York farmer. They moved to Kansas, where she became a mom of like 13 kids. He died in 1916. Over the years, Laurency would occasionally go back to the Roths. She would participate in seances and everything and allow Mary to visit through her again, but only during those times. Like, it was never a possession anymore. Mm -hmm. And Laurency died in Los Angeles, California, August 30th, 1952. So Laurency Venom, she was known as the... Watsika Wonder, because again, during this time that she was at the Roth's house, they would hold seances and like all the spiritualists would come and she would, you know, do all of these things and they would charge and, you know, I mean, yeah, do all the shit. Yeah. So like Mary even like left her body one time and like inhabited 
like one of the people in the audience and, you know, like all of the things. And so there were write-ups about the Watsika Wonder. So this is known as America's first documented case of spiritual possession. What? Yes. However, some people are skeptical and they say it's either like hysterical impersonation or that Mary was a secondary personality of Lorancey. But it's like, how does she have all of that knowledge? Yeah. Like, she had too much. And they're like, it could have been an elaborate hoax. However, again, how does she know about people and the places and just random artifacts and stuff that she would know about Mary's life that she shouldn't know? Yeah. And so the question still remains, was it a spiritual possession was it an impersonation or was it a hoax? I don't know, man. Because again, how did she know some of the things that she knew? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't fake some of that. I mean, I guess you could if you were like a mentalist, but because how'd she know like the layout of their house and the this and the that, you know? Right. It's not like she had Zillow.com. Mm-hmm. Or fucking Google Earth. Right. But then again, people are fucking shady. So who yeah. knows? Yeah, and the Roths really wanted to talk to Mary. So it could have been maybe he, you know, like put the the idea into her and, you know, like that name came up and then he's like, yes, yes, yes. Exactly, you know, yeah. Who knows? And then, of course, it, you, uh, who knows? But I just feel like it, for it to be an elaborate hoax, they really didn't gain anything from it. Right. Except for to have to take care of somebody else for fucking three months. Yeah. And like her family didn't gain anything. And, you know, I don't know. Like, why? Yeah. So, I don't know. I want to believe it was spiritual possession. Maybe. At least it wasn't like a scary possession. Yeah. It wasn't like a fucking the demon that shall not be named. Mm-hmm. Well, you said yours didn't have as many twists and turns as mine, but you had me going <gasps> a couple of times. <laughs> like, that was good. Yay, I'm glad you liked it. I've really liked both of our stories this week. I do too. It was a good change from last week because last week was fucking heavy as shit. It really was. And I mean, Obvi is still like murder and possession, but just totally different, you know? Yes. We hope y'all loved them too. And we want to know what y'all think. Was it a possession? Was it not? Little big, little big. What movie? How to lose a guy in 10 days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. And as always... Like, review, subscribe, all the things on all the platforms. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.